my wife and I, we recently headed off to Thailand for our honeymoon. And let me tell you, after six months of stressful wedding planning, Thailand was our ultimate destination. We really wanted to get there. But before we could get there, we had to wait for three hours in Singapore. We had a stopover flight. Um, now, what would I say of Singapore? If you ask me about my honeymoon, that's not the first thing I'm going for. It was, after all, just the stopover. And so, in, in one sense here, we have to see the book of Acts, uh, at least in terms of chapter 1, as something of a stopover in redemptive history. It, it's just a necessary step on the journey. So what we need to see is that when we apply this text to our lives, it's not so much we're applying it directly, it's a little bit more derivative. These disciples find themselves in a unique place in redemptive history. I like to say they're caught between the covenants. I mean, the, the veil had been torn, but the Spirit hadn't yet come. So Jesus had ascended, the gospel had been accomplished in that sense, the life, death and resurrection of Jesus had occurred and now they find themselves waiting. And Jesus said to them in effect, look guys, that this thing that I'm about to do, this gospel that we're about to go and proclaim, you better believe it's going to break out. It, it, it's going to reach Judea, it's going to reach Samaria and I'm going to tell you, it's going to reach the end of the earth. But right now, I just, I just need you to wait here in Jerusalem. I need you to wait for the promise of the Father. And then he left. And so in verse 12, where we read today, this is precisely what we see them do. They return to Jerusalem. It says they returned from the mount called Olivet. And I've got to be honest, I imagine this would have been a pretty, I don't know, even depressing walk home. Just think about it. Their Lord had left them. Uh, this journey was a 1,200-meter journey, and they were told to go via the Mount of Olives, which was that all-too-familiar mountain for these men. Think of all the tender memories that would have occurred on this mountain. All of the nights they would have camped out with Jesus in that final week before his crucifixion. The, cru the betrayal of Christ occurred on this mountain, and then perhaps even Peter recalled the moment he severed off someone's ear and his own Lord rebuked him. This was not a a fun place to walk back towards Jerusalem, I would have imagined. I pin this as a very depressing walk back to the city. But actually, on the contrary, that's not what we find. Luke has written for us in his first volume, Luke 24. This is how he describes that journey. It says, While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple Blessing God. You see, contrary to our own experience with waiting, what we see here is that these disciples are waiting with joy. They are eagerly expecting the promise of the Father. There is a sense of anticipation in the air. And these disciples, they would have had a bit of an idea of what was going on. They have heard the promises of, of old. They would have heard the words of the prophet Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. That they would have heard the words of Ezekiel, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Perhaps they'd even heard the words of John the Baptist, Oh, I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And then before Jesus left, he said these words in John 16, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. 
For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So there's joyful expectation, there's excitement, they've heard these promises of old, and yet they still didn't have it all together. You see, Jesus has told them to wait, and yet there's still a degree of naivety to their thinking. Back in verse 3 from last week, we learned that Jesus had just given them a 40-day intensive, like a crash course on the kingdom of God, which, let me tell you, that gives me seminar envy like you wouldn't believe. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall at that seminar. And yet, despite this crash course, they're still kind of adolescent in their thinking. We see it there in verse 6. They say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? (laughs) You see, as joyful as they are, they're still thinking about God's redemptive plan in purely Jewish terms. That... I'm not doubting that they have bowed the knee to the resurrected Christ. You you can't doubt that. But there's a kind of residual ethnocentric flavor to their theology. They're still thinking a little bit like Jews. Perhaps the parable of the great banquet from Luke 14 hadn't quite sunk in yet. They're still figuring it out. And what could make that any clearer than what we read in Luke 24? Where were they worshipping? They were worshipping with joy, but they were worshipping at the temple of all places, Do you remember Jesus pronouncing woes over this temple? He called it a den of robbers. He even said he would destroy it, and in AD 70, he did. And yet here they are, worshipping at the temple. Don't get me wrong, Luke is not saying there's something corrupt about their worship. He's not associating them with the Pharisees in any sense. But he's saying that they've still not figured it out yet. The Spirit hadn't come. God's redemptive plan was not all that clear to him. Uh, I, even, I even think of Pippin from the movie Lord of the Rings. He's like, wait, I'm, I'm coming too. We need people of intelligence on this journey, quest, thing. Right, where are we going? There's, there's excitement, there's anticipation for what's next, but naivety at the same time. And that's what Luke is showing for us here. So it's joyful waiting, it's somewhat naive waiting, and then what we learn from our text today where we just read, it says it's also prayerful waiting. They're in verse 13 and 14, they're in the upper room, this is most likely John Mark's house, uh, which is where we see the church in Jerusalem hang out a fair bit in the early chapters of the book of Acts, we'll see that throughout the series. And we see the disciples listed there along with the women and Mary and his brothers, they're all united together devoting themselves to prayer. And begs the question, okay, what are they praying for? Well, the text doesn't say it directly, but I think the context of where this prayer sits makes it actually very clear what they'd be praying. They'd be praying about, obviously, what had just transpired, the incarnate work of Jesus, and then that which was about to take place, Pentecost. See, I imagine their prayer would have sounded something like this. Father, thank you for sending your Son. Thank you for sending the Messiah, Thank you that we have borne witness to his resurrection and we eagerly await the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Oh Lord, give us this promise. Enable us to be your witnesses to the end of the earth. And then I imagine as they're praying, they'd be recalling that what they're praying is in fact the very words Jesus taught them to pray in Luke 11. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? And here they are, perhaps for the first time, asking for the Holy Spirit. Now, in some sense, we need to clarify, that might seem a little odd. I mean, Jesus made a promise. You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Lock it in, Eddie. It's a done deal. All bets are off. This is going to happen. But if that's the case, why are they praying? 
If Jesus' promise is so sure and the Spirit is truly coming, why pray? You see, it's tempting for us as we grow in our knowledge of God's sovereignty and the certainty of His promises for us to move actually towards a spirit of prayerlessness. You see, even for me, though I proudly uphold the sovereignty of God as it's revealed in Scripture, one of the unfortunate byproducts that tends to crop up in my life and tends to crop up in our lives, if we're honest, can actually manifest as prayerlessness. When in fact what should happen is that as we grow in our knowledge of God's sovereignty and when He makes promises towards us, it shouldn't move us away from prayer, prayer but toward it. God's sovereignty does not make prayer useless. The only thing that would make our prayer useless is if God weren't sovereign. If He had no control over the certainty of the future, then prayer would be useless. But God is sovereign. His promises are sure. And as J.I. Packer put it, he said, God did not teach us the reality of His rule in order to give us an excuse for neglecting His orders. So like the disciples here, like they exhibit for us, we too ought to be a people devoting ourselves to prayer. And yet, as we said before, the application is not quite direct. It's a bit derivative. The prayer that they're praying isn't exactly the same prayer we should be praying in the 21st century. There's overlap, but because they're in a unique situation in history, their prayer's a little different. You see, the event of Pentecost, which we'll get to next week in chapter 2, with respect to chapter 1, that's in the disciples' future, but it's in our past. It's an event in history. And it inaugurated the church age that you and I live in right now. And although you and I have received the benefits of Pentecost in that we have the Spirit if we have received Christ, we don't have to pray for Pentecost to happen again the way these guys are. Pentecost has happened. God's Spirit has come and is readily available to empower us for ministry. We're not supposed to ask for tongues of fire every Sunday service. (laughs) Now, does that mean I don't believe in the gifts of the Spirit? Of course not. I pray in tongues regularly. But what it does mean is this. Our prayer is a little bit different to what we see here in chapter 1. You see, praying for Pentecost to happen again would be a little bit like us praying for the flood to happen again. Lord, please flood the earth. There's a lot of crazy people down here. (laughs) Jesus would probably answer you, hey, you're right, there are a lot of crazy people down here. You're one of them. I've already done that and I said I wouldn't do it again. You'd be praying for an event that's already happened to happen again. So what our prayer is, that where we have the overlap, is that our prayer is to be praying for the continual filling of the Holy Spirit, to pray for continued empowerment for ministry, continued boldness to be Christ's witnesses to the ends of the earth. That's our prayer. When we receive Christ, Ephesians 1.13 says that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit, but then we must continually ask Him to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. This is an ongoing thing. Some have taught that it's just another step in your salvation, as though you have to be baptized into Christ, then baptized into the Spirit, and then you're saved. But no, this is an ongoing process for the Christian to empower them for ministry. Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So the reality is, if we're not praying for continued filling, then all of our best Christian effort is really void of God's power. <laughs> to, to be honest, I'm not that clever. We're not that clever. <laughs> if we want to see effective evangelism in our lives, if, if we want to see our friends and family who don't know Jesus come to faith, we need the power of the Holy Spirit. If we want to see the blind see and the lame walk, 
And if we want to restore true humanity, we need to be a people devoting ourselves to prayer and specifically praying for the continual filling of the Holy Spirit. Our own strength isn't going to do it. Pentecost was an event on God's redemptive calendar and we receive the benefits thereof. If you really want to pray for another event on God's redemptive calendar, there's actually only one left. That's the return of Christ. That's the next event. We don't have to pray for Pentecost anymore. It has come. So pray for the continued filling. But if you want to pray for another event on God's redemptive calendar, it's right there in verse 11. The angel said, Jesus will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. If you really want to pray for the next chapter, that's it there. So we see the disciples pray for the promise of God, not because they doubt Jesus' words, but because he is sovereign, or as John Calvin put it, prayer is not a sign of doubting, but it is a witness to our certain hope and confidence since we ask the Lord for things that we know he has promised. So let's pray for the Holy Spirit. Let's keep reading. It says, In those days Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. And said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Al-Keldamah, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. Our passage now turns towards that saddening tragedy of the betrayal of Christ and the subsequent judgment upon Judas Iscariot. But, but just before we get to that, just have a look who's addressing this congregation. It is none other than Peter, of all people. He is addressing this congregation of about 120 people. Now, why does Luke comment on the 120 people? Scholars suggest what he's doing is, is that in Jewish thought, if you had about 120 people gathered, you had enough people to form your own new community with your own council. And so basically, he's trying to show that this new community of believers is really separate from the Jewish synagogue. There is something else happening here. And so Peter is addressing this congregation. The very man who denied Christ is now comforting this congregation, which, if you think about it, is quite a transformation in Peter's heart and a sole testament to the grace of God. Go back to Luke 22, verses 31 to 32. This is what Christ said to Peter prior to his betrayal. He said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And that is precisely what we see Peter doing here. He is strengthening his brothers. Jesus has prayed for him and has come into effect. And he says, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled concerning Judas. Judas was allotted his share in the ministry. This is a man who was appointed by none other than Christ himself, He is a man who partook in the same ministry that Peter and the other apostles partook in. Jesus, sorry, Judas walked with Christ for three years. He was witness to his teaching, to his miracles. And then Judas himself was even given power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases and to go and proclaim the kingdom of God. But ultimately, we read in Luke 22 that Satan entered Judas 
And he became the ultimate betrayer of our Lord. And yet Peter curiously comments on this event and he says, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled. In other words, the betrayal of Christ had to happen. In fact, it's so clear in Peter's mind, he actually alludes to the fact that it's an event that had been predicted long ago in the writings of David. And he's talking about the Old Testament Psalms. And he says down there in verse 20, he's quoting from Psalm 69, 25. He says, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. You see, in its original context, Psalm 69 was written as an individual lament, whether it's coming from David or another psalmist. Basically, this psalmist is describing the suffering he was experiencing at the hands of his enemies. And so Psalm 69 functions as cries of vindication to God. Would you come and judge my enemies? And so Peter picks up the train of thought from Psalm 69. It says, let their own table become before them become a snare. And when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. And this is where Peter picks it up. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. So Peter picks up this scripture and says it is written concerning Judas, which basically just means this scripture finds its ultimate application in Judas in the same way that David or the psalmist experienced suffering at the hands of his enemies. Now Jesus is experiencing suffering at the hands of Judas. And Peter says this had to take place, which raises a curious question because Judas is portrayed here as being divinely judged it says that he fell headlong and he burst open the mill and all his bowels gushed out if we harmonize with uh, what we what said in matthew 27 we read judas hung himself so how do we put those two accounts together well scholars say we've got two options number one you can say that subsequent to hanging himself as a sign of divine retribution god caused his bowels to gush out that's one option Or perhaps as he hung himself, the rope or the branch broke, then he perhaps fell on something sharp, like some jagged rocks. Both of them are pretty gruesome images. But what we know for certain is this, is that Jesus said in Mark 14, 21, Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And yet, Peter says it was decreed by the Holy Spirit long ago and that it must take place. Wait a minute, if, you're, if what you're saying is true, does that make Judas innocent? I mean, you are blaming Judas for the betrayal of Christ, but you seem to be saying he only did that which God had determined him to do. Maybe Judas is just a puppet, a pawn on God's redemptive chessboard, and perhaps God's in fact to blame. How would we answer that criticism? John Calvin cleverly comments here. He says, It would be no more right to ascribe the guilt of the crime to God than to transfer the credit of redemption to Judas. As if to say, well, Judas played a necessary role. Perhaps on Christmas and Easter we should thank Judas for his betrayal because what he did contributed to my salvation. No. No, what what Calvin's saying in effect is that we need to appreciate this event not only through the lens of God's decreed will, as Peter does here by quoting the Psalms, but we also need to view this through the lens of God's commanded will. God does not command betrayal. He does not command deceit. He does not command conspiring. Judas is no puppet. Judas fell away because of his own deliberate wickedness. He is to blame and God justly judges him. And Peter says it there in verse 18, this is the reward of his wickedness. And he serves 
as a timeless warning throughout all of church history that it is possible to have walked alongside Christ, to have been allotted a share in the ministry, but to have never truly known Christ. Didn't Christ warn of this in Matthew 7? He said, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Judas would have casted out many demons. He proclaimed the kingdom of God, but he was ultimately a worker of lawlessness. And so Peter declares to his congregation, he's quoting yet another psalm there in verse 20. This time it's Psalm 109. He says, let another take his office. AKA, we, we, we need to replace him. Now, what, why do we need to replace him? We've still got 11 out of the 12 apostles. That's pretty good. It's the healthy end of a cricket team. I think it's pretty good, isn't it? 11 out of 12. But the answer seems to be that there's something of a relationship between the 12 men appointed by Christ to be apostles representing in some sense the 12 tribes of Israel. We, we see this language pop up in a couple of places in the New Testament. Uh, for example, we see it there in Luke 22, verses 28 to 30. He says, You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. We see it again in Revelation 21:14. It says, And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Do you see the carryover? There's something of a relationship between the twelve apostles and the twelve tribes of, of Israel. So just prior to Pentecost, there's a kind of mending of the nets that needs to occur. Given the apostasy of Judas, this apostolic circle must be reestablished. And that's where we pick it up in verses 21 to 26. So it says, So... So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put two forward, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Now these verses that we just read are incredibly important for how we understand um, church governance and gifts and roles in the church age. They, they basically give us a criteria sheet, uh, what you could call the inherent requirements of the role, for who qualifies to be an apostle. You couldn't just appoint anyone to be an apostle. You couldn't just go to someone and say, hey, you, you've got two arms, two legs and a heartbeat. Yeah, look, we'll go with you. You, you can be our next apostle. No, if you had to meet some very specific criteria, it's twofold. Number one, you had to have witnessed the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You had to have seen the risen Lord. If you didn't meet this criteria, you couldn't be an apostle. And only two men met in this congregation met this criterion, justice and Matthias. And then the second thing you needed to have to be an apostle was he had to be appointed to the role by Christ himself. We see it there in verse 24 in their prayer, Lord, show which one of these two you have chosen. Now I can imagine that there may be some among us today who want to push back at this idea. To, to which, can I say, fair enough, I, I grew up 
uh, around some uh, understandings where apostles continued into the church age. That's how I grew up. So I've, I've been there. Uh, perhaps you've even seen people in the church referring to themselves as apostles. Hi, I'm Apostle Fred. Or come to me with the, to this seminar. Oh, we're going to go see Apostle so-and-so speak. It's going to be great. He's going to bring heaven down to earth. They get particularly excited about the ministry of apostles. But the question has to be asked in light of Acts chapter 1 here. Do these apostles who we encounter today in the church, did they see the resurrected Christ? If someone comes to me and says, hi, uh, I'm Apostle Fred. I'll say, hi, Fred. Um, do, do tell me, which, which of the New Testament letters did you write? Oh, Fred, did you write Hebrews? Because we still haven't figured it out. It was it you. Uh, Fred, tell me, when you saw his body, what did the wounds look like? Did, like Thomas, did you put your fingers through his hands? Did did you see the wound at his side where the spear went through? You would have seen that, wouldn't you, Fred? Fred, did you go and inspect the empty tomb? What was that like? You see, true apostles witnessed the resurrection and could testify to these details. These are the men who are with our Lord from the beginning. And Peter knows, as Paul would later write in Corinthians, that if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then their preaching would be in vain and their faith would be in vain. So if they're going to build a church, they need to build it upon men who have witnessed the resurrection. And so some will ask, okay, well, what about Paul? Fair question. Paul, he met this criteria as well, and I'll admit, in a somewhat unusual way. Paul is something of an exception, but exceptions only ever serve to prove the rule. In fact, in Paul's lifetime, there were those in Corinth and elsewhere who did, a question, did question his apostleship. Paul replied to those remarks in 1 Corinthians 9.1. He says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? You see, he, he goes back against the criticism by saying, yeah, I'm an apostle. Why? Because I've seen Jesus our Lord. And he's referring, of course, to the events on the road to Damascus where Paul, or Saul then, was knocked off his horse and he saw the resurrected Christ. He says again in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 7 through 9, it says, Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. You see, Paul witnessed the resurrected Christ. In Galatians 1, 1 and elsewhere, he tells us that he was appointed by Christ. And here in 1 Corinthians 15, he tells us not only is he the least of all the apostles... He's also the last of the apostles. It's right there for us in verse 8. Last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me. The office of apostleship was a first century phenomenon. These are the men who witnessed the resurrected Christ. These are the men who wrote the New Testament scriptures. And they are the men who Ephesians 2.20 says are the foundation on which the church is built. Now, there's maybe some other follow-up questions. Were there only 12 apostles? Well, apparently not. There may have been a few more. We see there in 1 Corinthians that Jesus also appeared to James, his brother. This is the man who wrote the epistle of James, which we read in the New Testament. We see it there in Galatians 1.19. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. So here in uh, Galatians, we see that James is referred to as an apostle. He played a very key role in the church in Jerusalem. So that makes 13. 
Well, then there's Barnabas. If you read Acts 14, verse 14, it says, when, when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out. You see, Barnabas is considered an apostle there in collection with Paul. So that's 14. Now, there may have been others. People will throw up a couple of other names, but Scripture is less clear about Paulus. But what we do know is that there are no more today. And let me tell you, I've grown up around some of the most godly people I know who would subscribe to the idea that apostles still exist today. They would say, Jaden, this is what's missing in the church today. You know, we need, like we've got all these pastors and teachers, but where are the apostles at? You know, we've got to bring heaven to earth. I've heard other people say, you know, in the end times, we're going to see you know, prophets and apostles working close together, and that's a sign that that's going to usher in the coming of Christ. I've, I've heard these claims by some of the most godly people I know. But here's the truth. The canon of Scripture is closed. And if you really do desire the ministry of apostles in your life, pick up the New Testament. (laughs) They've given you everything you need. You can let the Apostle John, the Apostle Peter, the Apostle Paul, all of them minister to your heart. We have this foundation that we build the church on. Now, Some would say, and I'll admit personally, I'm not 100% persuaded yet, but even within the Reformed tradition, you do find some people say that you can look at uh, scriptures like Ephesians uh, 4.11 and say, well, although the office of apostleship has closed, there is a gift of the apostleship that continues. It it, it would be something that describes someone who's a pretty effective missionary. They're, They're always planting churches. You might say that their gift set is apostolic. My pastor is a man who comes to mind. He heads up Acts 29 Australia. And I'm subtly hesitant to say, Adam, your gifts are apostolic. And that's about as far as I'm willing to go. I would never call my pastor an apostle. (laughs) But if that's where you do land and you're happy to have a gift of apostleship in your theology, God bless you. I think that's a reasonable place to land. But what I would ask is this, not that I'm the yardstick of all truth. (laughs) The Bible is that. But because of the rest of the New Testament, for the sake of your brothers and sisters in Christ and not confusing them, can we not refer to these people as apostles? Apostles is something far different. So two men among them witnessed the resurrection, but one must be chosen. So how are they going to do it? It says, well, they've prayed about it, and they asked that Jesus would choose. And then we read there in verse 26, something really peculiar. It says, and they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. In Proverbs 16.33, it says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. You see, the procedure that they used here is an Old Testament Jewish procedure where you would take either a piece of wood or stone, you'd write two names, and you'd hide them away into a, a container of sorts or even your own garment, and then someone would, after shaking it, take out a name, and that was how you casted lots. This is a procedure we see throughout the Old Testament. You'll see it in Leviticus, Numbers, even Chronicles. So what do we take from this verse? When it's time to make a big decision, we go scrambling for the dice. Is that what Jesus is telling us in his word today? Hmm, if I roll a six, I buy the Mustang. (laughs) That'd be nice. One in six chance of a Mustang. Now, some have said we should view this as the disciples really being impatient. You know, they've resolved to use dice, and what they should have done is waited for Jesus to appoint Paul. But that, that's not what Luke's showing here. What he's actually showing us is, once again, that 
they haven't quite got it figured out yet. They are still caught between the covenants. They are resorting to old covenant methods of decision-making because the Spirit had not yet come. They've gone old school. In fact, what we see for the rest of the book of Acts and for the remainder of the New Testament, this procedure is never utilized again, not once. When it comes to decision-making, there's no casting lots for the New Testament church. There's no putting out a fleece, though I, in a confused manner, tried to do that many times as a kid, as I was told to do. No, when it comes to big decisions, it is simply prayerful, wise, methodical, and it often involves consulting others. Project Church, we have the Spirit now, so we, ha- we can do away with the casting of lots. We're no longer caught in between. Well, that brings us to the end of our text. And so I want to leave you with this, these final thoughts. Are you prepared for the Holy Spirit? Like the church is here, are we devoted to prayer, asking for the Holy Spirit, not for the first time as they did, but in an ongoing manner? We don't have any apostles to appoint, but know that we have the ministry of the apostles right here for us. And if we do want to see change, if we do want to see the gospel go forth, if we do want to see the kingdom of God advance, if we do want to restore true humanity, then we need to be praying for the Holy Spirit. So let's ask him for that now.